Hey everybody, it's Ian King, founder of King Sports International, author of a number of books on training and innovator of training methods used throughout the world. Today's huddle will be focusing on muscle tears. Why I'm doing that is that I've met a, a few people lately in particular who've said to me, Ian, can I rehabilitate this or do I need surgery? It's a pretty big decision. Before we get into the specifics of that answer or that question and answer, I want to talk about muscle tears in general. And I'm going to use the experiences of the coaches with me on the call to see what their experiences have been as far as muscle tears and any changes being seen in the marketplace, in sport, in gyms, etc., in relation to tears. So as we typically like to do, I'm going to go back in time a little bit and I'm going to ask the coaches... The first question, is there a change? Um, and you know, what was it like many, many years ago? Like, you know, are things changing? And, and what, what was it like for you in your earliest days? So who wants to kick off with that? Their answer on the first question. Uh, Ryan's here. Uh, I don't recall many, many tears when I was growing up. Something uh, that I've like a wives tale of I've heard of someone that once had it say a, a groin pull or something that but I've never met them and uh, today it's it's an epidemic professionals on down you're, you're meeting a lot of young athletes and the young teens that have had uh, muscle tears and to, to minor extents compared to full tears but still there and shouldn't be just as a start Appreciate that, Ryan. Anyone else to talk about any changes they're seeing in the world of muscle tears? Yeah, the only... The only uh, oh, go for it. Go ahead, John, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, back in the day, the only thing I've ever even heard of muscle tears would be like a professional bodybuilder tearing a pec or tearing a bicep or something like that. But... Um, yeah, nowadays it's just happening way more often and to way younger kids who are not as training as intensely either. Isn't that interesting? Mitchell? Yeah, if you go back in the time that I've been involved in sport, the frequency and severity of muscle tears has increased without doubt. On top of that, people might say 15 years ago, 10 years ago, oh, People didn't train with as much intensity and they didn't train as much, etc. And that may or may not be true. But the reality is, for all the advancements we've had in technology and sport, for all the more inverted commas knowledge that we have, and for all the pre-season newspaper articles and coaching guarantees that the teams are going to be prepared better this year and they're going to be this and they're going to be that, I've seen nothing... Generally speaking, there's always exceptions to rules, but generally speaking, I've seen nothing but being absolutely um, amazed at the amount of muscle tears, groin tears, pec tears, bicep injuries, um, hamstring tears, quad tears, calf tears, and not just every now and then, but repeatedly in these athletes. It's a joke. And if coaches, if the physical preparation coaches, were um, financially penalised for every muscle tear that they had in the squad they trained, training would be a lot different and it's sad that coaches don't understand this because an injury is not just 
doesn't last six to eight weeks. It's damaging that athlete forever, that athlete's body through length of their career and throughout the length of their life. And we've got too much incompetence um, entrusted to people who don't deserve it and don't have the skills to be in those positions. So I want to reinforce the, the trend that you're talking about there. You know, as a, as a young fellow, I, I don't ever remember having a tear. Um, you know, the closest I think I got to it was in uh, in the 90s doing sprint training and feeling a bit of a twinge and that was about it. And the, as John said, you, you'd occasionally meet say, a, a powerlifter who had a bicep tear. What I'm seeing now is, as one of you said, is nothing short of an epidemic of tears. Uh, I was in in another country recently doing a seminar and on I was um, blown away by how many people in the audience uh, had tears. I was training a group of teens uh, just a few days ago, and five minutes in, one of them couldn't run anymore, and his, his calves were blowing out. And I found out that he'd been doing hill sprints in the two days before a game in season. So, you know, he's going to tear his calves in the next few weeks. As Mitchell said, if people were accountable for their soft tissue injuries that are being experienced by the athletes they'd be in a negative uh, there's one sporting team in the national, one of the national leagues here uh, that has had more players having surgery this season than they have in the starting lineup. so you know, people I think now assume that it's normal is this the new normal? is having a torn muscle the new normal? Well, it is, if you believe uh, comments that people say. I'm just trying to bring it up right now as I speak, but I read something uh, yesterday. Where's this quote right here? It says, um, I'm not finding it, but basically it says, in in this sport, Sport X, injuries happen. uh, It's part of what we do, and we've just got to get on with it. (laughs) And with that attitude, that that will be the outcome. So that's yeah, t- typically bad luck too. I hear often. Or the curse. Or the curse. I like the curse or the plague or yeah. Yeah. Re- recall five players playing the same position being lost in a seven-day period for one team, and they just kept calling it the curse. So if it, it appears to be pretty normal now, as in people think this is normal for a. Uh, professional athlete or competitive athlete and just to clarify that my attitude is it's not uh, my goal working with teams is zero injuries um, I have put teams through seasons of no soft tissue injury the players who, who, who I meet from periods in the past would always comment to me on how amazed they are how injury free they were and how injury free or how much injury um, is occurring in more recent times so my attitude is it's not normal, it's not needed and it doesn't need to happen and anybody who's part of it obviously has a different opinion than I do on training and, and the acceptability of it. But then there's a whole subgroup of people I think are also being swept up in this this movement and I'm going to talk about 
the uh, sort of a recreational weight trainer. So it's you know one thing for someone trained to be a world champion to, to take some risks, etc., and maybe come out second best on some occasions. But I'm I'm talking about people who are playing amateur sport or semi-professional through to people who are just going to the gym to to get buffed. Are they being caught up in this trend in this epidemic? Are they are they paying the price for this as well? Um, yeah, a lot of people are pulling their muscles, especially when they try to do something new like uh, sprinting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's some great stories on that one. What about Ryan? You're saying do you think the the sub professional level are paying the price? It's, it's not. It's commonplace now to see a, a gym with a therapist center or group of, or, or a therapist attached to them. It's it's almost like a given. If you train with me, you'll have to do some therapy here with, <laughs> with me as well. So let's go through this. Bicep tears. How do people tear their bicep? Really well, it's too tight in the first place, probably from an imbalanced program of doing too much bicep work and then overstretching it. Well, too much bicep work and not stretching it at all. Yeah. So, non-use, uh, using non... Uh, well, overstretching it in a lift that they do. Yeah, I'm like, it in a lift, yeah, exactly. Like so, but, uh, the loading takes you into a, into a joint angle that it just can't go there because it's never been there for a few years. And it has no choice but to give it up. So non-full range movements in the absence of stretching would be the two biggest killers of bicep. So people doing bicep curls and not extending, people doing chin-ups and not extending, and people who don't stretch. Bang. Then if you add that to a deadlift, so you know if you, if you don't want to use full range movements and you don't want to stretch, then don't deadlift. And deadlift being the bent knee deadlift that I'm talking about, which was, you know, it's only the more recent times where we had to clarify that. So you, you'll have a longer non-torn bicep period if you avoid deadlifting, but if you're deadlifting under, under those two circumstances, then you're going to tear. The number of bicep tears I'm seeing is just ridiculous. What about chest? How, how do they tear their chest? Too much benching, not enough stretching. Excessive volumes, reducing the range, the absence of stretching. So you know, bicep back and front so the the bicep tears occurring quite often in in a deadlift more than anything else the bench press tears typically occurring in the bench itself I would would also say people um, people think that forced reps are like the be all and end all of getting bigger and stronger and leaner and they overuse them big time and, and that's another way that they tear the pack. And the risks, the risks of injuries ex- accelerate in the further into fatigue you go. So the use of super maximal efforts, be it super maximal on the, the, the nervous system in terms of how much you can lift, or super maximal on the metabolic sense in terms of being able to do more reps, whenever you go into the higher levels of fatigue, your injury risk increases substantially. And, and that's right, John. I, I'm... Um, 
just about put it on a constant loop. The answer to the question is no, you shouldn't be using super maximal methods every time you train and you shouldn't be using them in every, every exercise you do within a training session. It seems to be some lesson uh, that's being slowly absorbed. So let's go to probably the next most common ten this in running sport. Athletes, hamstring. How the hamstring tears goes? Often you look at their training and it's very quad dominant. Uh, losing the control of their hips, they have the huge anterior tilt in their pelvis, and the, the hamstrings are already in a, in a tightened position, and then they start just gassing uh, sprints. And if you, anybody reads uh, one, so go ahead, John. Also, they're, usually their hip flexors are really tight. And, um, you know, through, uh, you know, reciprocal inhibition shuts their butt down. And so the hamstrings usually take over and are just overworked because of that, too. So it's pretty safe to say. Stretched. It's pretty safe to say that the majority of people engaged in weight training, if they're, if they're running, are going to tear the hamstring. So what people don't understand is you can do an imbalanced strength training program, and if you don't run, you'll get away with it for a lot longer. But the minute you run, you're in trouble. So when people apply the average strength training program protocols to running sport athletes, all they're doing is creating hamstring injuries in them. And, and, and we're just warming up because hamstrings aren't the only lower extremity connective tissue risk that is being exposed here. But hamstrings just probably one of the better known ones, the more common ones. So I don't have a lot of hope for people engaged in the majority of strength training programs. If they're in a running sport athlete, they are going to tear. So when I say tear, the initial tear on a hamstring sensation is just, whoops, it doesn't feel good. And that's not necessarily a mechanical tear. But if they ignore that and continue down that path, then it will become a mechanical tear. And then the full extreme of that is where it's torn completely off the bone. And uh, I've unfortunately seen a few cases, more so of late, of surgical reattachment of the hamstring. And we'll come back to talking about surgery options shortly. But, um, yeah, pretty ugly place to be. Quads. Talk about quad tears. Yeah, they're also um, probably less common than a hamstring. But, um, you know, in relation to tight quads, tight hip flexors, a lot of squatting, a lot of quad dominant activity. Um, just to name a few things, just general fatigue as well. 
um, inappropriate arrests. There's a lot of reasons for, for, for the quads to get for the quads to tear, and a lot of them are very manageable and preventable through appropriate programming. It's an amazing sight when you see a torn quad. You, know, you see the hole, let's say, the size of a coin in someone's quad. You've seen that? Yep. It um, seems to leave a bit more of a mess than the hamstring tears, generally speaking. And again, I suggest that that's a signal being ignored because initially they're not necessarily going to be that bad. But So they've been your two big traditional ones, but it doesn't stop there now because... What I'm suggesting is that the imbalances caused by quad dominant programs and the absence of stretching create a lot of extremity challenges that go far beyond the hamstring and quad. Um, we're starting to talk about groin and hamstring, sorry, groin and calf in particular, not down to the foot. But what are you seeing with groins and, and calves? As a this is just my perspective. I've seen the age of strength training, so the age of these alleged um, performance programs get younger and younger. So you've got kids 8, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old engaged in adult-like strength training um, without appropriate flexibility who are doing high-volume running um, and limited stretching. The amount of um, these groin injuries they have and groin tears and osteitis pubis, etc., is just... It's absolutely mind-blowing, and the amount of surgery now to have a little cut through there to, to, to relieve the problem is really treating the symptom, not the cause. Um, and from my perspective, the biggest area here is stretching. I mean, you can get any athlete and look at their groin range, and it's disgusting. It's an absolute disgrace. And even if they have got appropriate range, just run your fingers, you know, up and down the inside of the quad, uh, inside the leg, and just see what kind of tension is like there. I mean, it's, it's just a disgrace um, what's happening. And I feel sorry for athletes today who are in these programs to have people that don't understand this and don't know how to rectify this. Yeah, I've got a real, real issue with uh, the physical preparation coaches who are in charge of programs with high, high levels of soft tissue, soft tissue injury. We just don't share the same values, uh, the same approach to training. What about calves, Ryan and John? Are you seeing any calves? Mm, no, not personally. No calves. It's going to be something that affects more the running sport athlete. Um, in... Yeah. No, lots of calves here. Uh, I've seen, seen them people that are... A lot of the skaters that I work with, they do a lot of skating and jumping in their boots. But then they're going and doing a lot of running as training that uh, their coaches want them to do. So I'll see a lot of those people come to me with with a lot of calf issues and lower extremity issues like shin shin splints, etc. It's interesting when the modalities change. I see some with a, a bit of a trend of the barefoot running trend for athletes who don't who compete in shoes or boots. Um, that's a funny one. Because, you know, over and above the theory of it all, if your body's not conditioned to, to running in barefoot, on, especially on hard uh, bitumen surfaces, which they don't even play on, and, and then uphill, I mean, there's just so many circumstances of aggravation being thrown in here, just mind-blowing lack of thought going into the programs, creating injuries that didn't need to exist. So, 
Yeah, the um, I had a comment on the calves. The only thing I've seen with calves, and I've also seen the same thing with hamstrings, is actually with um, people out surfing when the water gets cold, so in the winter time, so they won't stretch, and then when they bend their leg or if they flex their calf, it'll just Charlie horse up and not up. So I've seen that, but yeah, no actual tears. The calf tears are pretty scary because you've got a, a lot of load going on there. It's, it's a pretty hard one to rehabilitate unless you're going to get off your legs. In addition to that, the risk of tearing the Achilles tendon is, is very high and a tough one to rehabilitate from. It's doable, but you rarely see an athlete come back and perform at the same level post these sorts of injuries. So let's talk about uh, strategies for rehabilitation or repair. You know, when do you have surgery and when do you... When do you rehabilitate it conservatively? Let's start with a bicep. What are your thoughts on biceps? Well, it depends on what kind of tear you have. So if it's, you know, you're, if it's just like a minor one, like a class one or two tear where it's actually not torn in half and it's not split, um, I mean, you can, you can rehab it by staying off of it and not doing any exercise with it for a couple of days and then, you know, icing it, maybe taking some anti-inflammatories. But if it's a full split in the muscle, like if it is actually torn and has balled up under the skin, um, yeah, I mean, surgery is an option. So even with those, John... And they're pretty common where you can see the, the, the tennis ball sort of hole or divot in the just above the elbow joint. Unless the, the visuals are the primary concern, and that's something to talk about as well, then a lot of, a lot of athletes and a lot of, a lot of people training still have a, a reasonable level of strength in that joint. depends on how much muscles come off the bone, of course. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is um, from a from a function perspective all might not be lost I don't, I'm not sure that surgery is an absolute necessity that is determined by how much has been torn off and, and, the, and the visuals let's go on to um, let's go on the visuals I mean the question is how much will the surgery improve the visuals and this well, is a... I'd suggest that it would um, just getting back to what you're saying before yeah, there's heaps of athletes, heaps and heaps of athletes and people who train that don't have, like, that have had bicep tears and they just leave them, they go the non-invasive route and just leave them and um, they're fine. But visually, um, I'd imagine that, yeah, it does improve it. I guess you'd have a big scar where they reattach it and they're going to go back in and, you know, put the tendon back on the bone. But other than that, I'm, I'm sure that it probably looks perhaps better than hanging off the bone if, if aesthetics was something important. And the, the same applies, I think, to the chest. Same question. Is relevant um, how much function have you got left, how much strength have you got left in the absence of it, and what, what are the issues as far as what you look like, how big an issue is that? So let's talk about the implications of surgery, though. Let's, so if someone decides they're going to have surgery, what are some of the concerns you might have for them? Will it ever be the same? You know, cutting open the skin alone is, is changing everything permanently. 
So basically, it's probably never going to be the same. It's a bit of a lucky dip. So not only the, the cut to the skin, but that's a very good one that most people don't pick up on, is that the impact of, of having that scar in the skin. You know, there's a lot of other variables as far as the, you know, whether, whether the surgery is, inverted commas, successful, because I don't think any surgery is, is a measure of success. It's actually a failure that you need a surgery in the first place, but um, back in the best of a bad situation, there are some other risks in surgery. So they include, you know, do you get the length back? Is, is, the, is, is the insertion point right? Um, has, has, did it get infected? Um, has the, the insertion point loosened over time? And then there's the impact on the rest of the body. You don't want to talk to that? Yeah, that compensation occurs right through the body. You often see in, uh, in particular in lower body where... It's a, it's a simple example to understand is one leg so far everyone's you're, you're putting more of your weight on the other leg or doing more on the other leg you rehab the other leg to a point where it's more flexible than your your non-injured leg and injury happens uh, more often than not in the uh, in the good leg I'd be pretty confident in saying that the majority of people who have a substantial injury and or surgery never fully rehabilitate the original injury and as a result of that, they will re-injure that side again and they will injure the other side where it's taking excessive load. So one of the first challenges that people have come back from surgery is to get the range back because irrespective of different prognoses regarding the optimal range, if the joint conditions change, it affects the function. The function change, it affects the bilateral distribution of load. Because this is a concept that is very poorly understood, I don't see very few, very few athletes very few athletes fully re, re, rehabilitate and the measure of that is did it re-injure again or did you get an injury on the other side or somewhere else as a result of it and at this stage people are very successful in, in denying the connection, uh, they, another injury comes along and no one seems to uh, remember why everyone has selective amnesia about the previous injury that led to the next injury so the dots aren't being connected, and that's okay from, a, from an accountability. People are getting away with it, but it's the athlete's concern. If the athlete or the individual has a genuine concern about their health and their future, I'd suggest that that's something that they'd want to check into a bit more. So let's talk about rehabilitation strategies. I love the hamstring one. Let's talk about the hamstring one. Or even the groin. Well, let's, let's do the hamstring first. So I've gone on and I've got a bit of a tear in my hamstring. So how am I going to rehabilitate it? This is a cracker. Well, there's generic protocols that a lot of uh, people follow and therapists give in order to, to do that. And long story short, it's basically taking the, the athlete, and I'm, I'm generally speaking from a team sport perspective or from an athlete perspective, taking them out of the training environment to the side, Rehabilitating it, so in other words, taking them out of the um, environment that actually caused the injury, giving them a better environment for a short period of time, and then throwing them back into the environment that caused the injury, and that happens again. That's the short on how it happens. It reinforces my saying that it's an oxymoron to suggest that you could rehabilitate an injury and be, remain injury-free in the same environment that caused the problem in the first place, because it's the training program that caused the problem. Exactly. So most rehabilitation 
strategies are irrelevant because they don't address the cause, only addressing the symptom. Now, on the subject of hamstrings, I love this one. The running program to rehabilitate the hamstring, anyone had some uh, exposure to, the, to that philosophy? Yep. Now, I have trouble keeping a straight face uh, in relation to this one, but I know I'm going to be insulting a lot of therapists. A lot of others, um, the concept that you're going to run the hamstring back into, into health is uh, interesting. That's, that's a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> and then <laughs> start at low intensity, low volume, build it up, then then change your direction, and then faster, and then okay, now you're right to go, basically. Yeah. So the, the litmus test is, you know, if I rested alone, would it heal faster? And I suggest that rest alone would exceed most rehabilitation techniques, and that one yeah. definitely. And here's my other favourite. Strengthening it. <laughs> That's very common up here. <laughs> yes. See, some time ago, when they introduced isokinetic testing of the leg extension, leg flexion, they came up with some conclusions and some uh, theories and followed that paradigm since that you know, if you're, uh, you're injured, it's because your hamstring was too weak and therefore we just need to strengthen your hamstring. And it'll be That's every injury. That's every injury and and every tear in North America is because they were too weak. Yeah. So obviously I have a different version of that, and they were inhibited. They were inhibited. They were too long, or they were too short. They had excessive and inappropriate neural innovation and couldn't take it anymore. None of which is really solved to any great extent with with strengthening as a, as an exclusive or sole solution. So I find that one a pretty funny one as well. Um, and that just goes towards what you were saying, Ian, about you know taking them out of the training environment. Mitchell, you were saying about taking them out of the training environment and that caused the injury. So the rest is helping heal that. We see that all the time where do this exercise, like stand on one foot and pick your nose and scratch your back, and it, it gets better. So that view that that strengthening exercise did the job. But but like you said, if you connect the dots nine times out of ten, the injury comes back. Exactly. And then the last one I kind of myself on is the, the more recent one where um, let's do some more lunges because lunges solve all problems. And it might be a bit of foreign one to you, but uh, tragically I've been exposed to that, that practice, that belief. In actual fact, one of the exercises that caused the problems in the first place is being used to solve the problem. So there are young athletes around the world who are doing some extra lunges to help overcome the sore quad that they've got. So the level of misinformation spread by people who really have got no idea and shouldn't be training anyone, shouldn't be writing about it, they don't train them, they shouldn't be writing about it, is not helping. So let's go to the groin. What are some of the... Some of the uh, strategies with the groin. I, I know you've been exposed to some of these, Mitchell. Yeah. Um, just to cut away a piece of the body and then that stops it being inflamed and so tight and you're right to go again. So that's that's the solution. Yep. You start cutting away at you. We'll hack you up because 
yeah, we're not going to accept responsibility or get better. We're just going to chop a part of your body away. And you don't need that part anyway. It's, it's not a big deal. <laughs> One of my favourite stories is a, 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 an athlete approached me and said, Ian, I've had this groin issue for nearly two years now. and In fact, I've had surgery and I went back to my, to my doctor and I, and I said, Doctor, I've had surgery, my groin's still hurting, and I just don't know what to do. And the doctor said to the young athletes, um, well, I've got the solution for you. And, and she got all excited and said, what is it? And he said, quit. So that was the solution offered up by the um, doctor in charge of the program. To her credit, didn't quit and achieved the goal of attending the next Olympics. So that was a, a great example of had the groin surgery, had the snip, didn't make any difference. So... Even with those, it does make any short-term difference. It's still addressing the symptom, not the cause. We go back in the same training environment and, surprise, surprise, re-injured. You know, groin, by the time the, the tension gets to the groin, you're in, a, you're in a world of hurt. By the time you get tension built up in the groin, you've probably got some fairly significant degenerative changes around the pelvis, around the hip, the hip joint. and you're in trouble. It's probably one of the tougher ones to shake, that uh, chronic groin ache or, or strain. It's, it can be a real challenge, and I understand why so many struggle with the rehabilitation of it, because by the time it's there, it's been there, you know, the problem's been around for some time, and, and everyone's put their head in the sand or not known how to deal with it. Uh, just on that, Ian, I remember um, a coach that came to one of our boot camps recently had uh, some significant hip degeneration from memory and um, this coach suggested that or this person suggested that they've done everything possible and I remember we were doing a stretching session and this person couldn't touch their toes, couldn't get into any positions couldn't do anything because they were so inhibited and such poor range and it's a chicken and the egg, you know do you not have poor range because of the injury or do you have the injury not because of poor range and um, what was interesting is there was so much that this person could have done, this seminar attendee could have done to improve their body, um, but won't. And the evidence was right in front of their face, but because um, the surgeon can't make money out of it and the payers at B don't have the skills in this area, I'd suggest that this person's life physically and, and joint physically will continue to go downhill um, you know, in a very, very fast way. And that's something we teach quite clearly, that never judge the joint until the joint is healthy. And the joint can never be healthy while the joint gap is reduced, and the joint gap is reduced because the connective tissue is shortened. The challenge in a chronically, um, chronically inflamed joint is it's, it's always uh, producing inflammation, which makes it harder to, to lengthen the connective tissue and open the joint up. So it's like two steps forward and one step backwards, and, and I appreciate that because many of us face that challenge on a day-to-day basis. But the opportunity is there for anyone to to optimise their function and their muscle strength, power, etc., by returning the joint gap to its original length through connective tissue length and tension manipulation. And when I say manipulation, I'm simply talking about strategies to to lengthen and soften. So those strategies exist for all of us, and sometimes they just take a lot more time. So. Yeah, and if I could add something to Mitchell there to definitely right. Just okay. Yeah, just the when you have a coach like that, that's 
living personally in that position, then that extends on to all those clients and all the people that are around them. And that goes for any individual working with any coach. If they don't have those uh, beliefs or values, it's that's the position they're going to be in, whether it's their their sport coach or their uh, their physical preparation coach. I've seen that, and if you've got a coach that actually did compete in a sport at the high level and they had a certain serious injury as a result of the way they trained, I definitely see that pattern being reproduced in the people they train. Uh, and then there's a flip side of those who don't actually train themselves but have positioned, they've got themselves a position training others, and I'm not sure how that works, but they do. Um, and then they apply training methods to them that they've never done themselves and they don't understand, they've got no idea what it would do to them, or they've done it once. And once you've done the, this crappy pr- training program with someone for three, five, seven, nine, eleven years, they're, they're pretty much have to retire from joint pain. So the being aware, Ryan, as you said, of what you're doing to someone else is is really big part of coaching. And, and I'd say it is completely, completely overlooked. Completely overlooked. No one cares. Uh, it's just a level of responsibility that is not being taken, and they're getting away with it at this point in time. Hopefully, over time, that this will change. But at this stage, if I'm a physical preparation coach and I have X number of my um, my people in my charge come out with X number of tears, surgeries, etc., it's it's just okay. And I I've got massive concerns about that, which is part of our zero tolerance to injury, uh, something that anyone would be threatened about at this stage if they were a coach, because we're we're putting a standard out there that would place an expectation on them. But I'm sure the end user or the athlete would be happy to hear what we're saying because my attitude is you don't need to be injured, you shouldn't be injured and, and don't uh, don't continue to endorse a program that creates your injury. And once you are injured, take the lesson and, and move on from it. If you go back in the same environment, cop the same injury again, well, I guess um, you asked for it in essence. So with someone in a position where they're making a decision between surgery and non-invasive techniques of rehabilitation, what would you recommend to them? Stay off of it. Stay off of it. Um, Ice it. Ice it till the inflammation's down. Alternate heat and ice. Get some blood flow in there afterwards. So there's some... I've I've actually pulled my growing and my hamstring before and that's exactly what I did and it was fine within about three days to a week so they're great initial treatments, we're talking about someone who's probably got their, their muscle or tendon off the bone so to speak and mm-hmm. they, like, they've been that way maybe for a while they're d- deliberating, you know, it's not getting any better, it might be getting worse, do I go you know, the surgeons told me that I can get this surgery you know what are some of the factors that they should be taking into account or what are some of the options as far as surgery or non-surgery in that situation? Number one, it's your body and you're responsible for it. So I'd be going very slowly in the decision-making. I know athletes have a lot of things pulling at them, a lot of different inputs, um, deadlines in terms of training, seasons, contracts, etc. So they can be a lot of uh, emotional decision-making instead of rational decision-making, so I'd encourage them to go very, very slowly in their decision. Understand 
and it won't mean much, but they've got to live with their body forever. And I know that doesn't mean much, but it might mean something to someone at some point in time. Um, and I'd encourage the non-invasive route only if you have skilled practitioners and people that can actually guide you in that process. They're hard to find. And something I want to throw in here is I've constantly seen all this time, oh, we've left no stone unturned. This person's left no stone unturned in this injury, and this is the only thing they can do. I just want to say, I've never met anyone that's left no stone unturned in order to do that. Never, ever. Um, and have so many examples of that. But if you don't ask the question, you'll never get the answer. But I'd encourage a very slow, non invasive process because um, you'll be amazed at what you can do with the right guidance. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of those. So I know I've read two, two, two people claiming that they've read everything there is to read in physical preparation. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting claim, isn't it? Every stone, uh, no stone unturned. Um, almost as, as funny as the ones that we, we, we went to Europe to see how, you know, what they did in soccer, um, which is one of the greatest um, craters of hip and knee injuries in the world. And it's so far removed from the options of, of addressing it because of the training volumes that... There's nothing, not a lot to learn there, or you know, and without any intent to offend my North American colleagues, uh, you know, went to America to, to see what they're doing. So you know, you'll see a, a lovely big building with a lot of beautiful machinery, but when it comes to wisdom and train decisions, I'm not too sure. So Mitchell said, take it, take, take it slow, and keep looking. Any other suggestions or considerations for? A person making uh, the decision more than in, the, in the, the dilemma, do I have the surgeon reattach it or do I seek a less invasive, more conservative approach? As Mitchell said, you are going to have a challenge in finding people who can, can uh, really help you. That's something we, we pride ourselves on, doing things that nobody else can do. And that won't make us too popular by even making that statement, but that's what we do. So the first challenge is finding somebody. The second challenge is, as Mitchell alluded, having the, the strength to say no to some time frames and deadlines that are in other people's agenda. The, the thing that I find interesting is athletes are willing to, to buy into someone else's agenda at the expense of their body, and then two, three, four, five years later, that person has got no bearing in their life whatsoever, but they're still living with the problem. And I'm amazed at the number of athletes who've, 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 I guess, probably known what they were walking into, but done it anyway, uh, and then spent the rest of their life limping as a result of it. it to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I, I'm pretty clear when I tell people, it's your body, you've got to live with it for the rest of your life. Uh, unless, you're, you know, unless it's worth literally millions of dollars to you or, or, or an Olympic medal, then I, I, I question the risk that you're taking by re-entering that environment at this point in time, and that's it's a tough thing to watch athletes do that, and it's a real risk. So we've talked about finding the right person to help you. We've talked about being willing to, to pursue the answer until you do find it. Uh, we've talked about delaying and slowing down on your, on your surgery decision. There's a, a few more points I want to make. Is number one, the rehabilitation you have to undergo to treat it conservatively is exactly the same rehabilitation you'll have to undergo if you're going to have a surgery anyway. So you've got absolutely nothing to lose because if you have surgery, you've then got the added complication of the implications of surgery. 
and they're for life because you don't trade in the surgery. The, tra- the, the, the surgery itself is not refundable, unfortunately. And then the reality of conservative rehab is that you have to have discipline, consistency. And that's, after all these other limiting factors, this is a massive stumbling block for many to be, be consistent and disciplined and, and patient in their approach. Because initially things could be slow for having a, a more accelerated return in the long term. And the concept of delayed gratification and, and patience, discipline, consistency, they're not, the values are, that appear to be less endorsed, shall we say. And then one of the final comments I'll say is, whatever you believe is possible, you will find a way to get it done. So if you believe that the only solution for you is surgery, then you're right. If you believe that you can solve this without surgery, then you'll be right. So your mindset at the end of the day is going to have a massive impact on that. So what we've done is talk about what I see as a incredibly exploding industry, the industry of torn muscle. And we're talking about from minor tear through to complete separation from the bone. The latter, unfortunately, being far too common, seems to be growing in, the, in, in its, in its uh, frequency. In a world where there's a, a blasé-ness to a desensitisation to injuries and an overall accepting that this is normal. It is our message that injuries are not acceptable. They are avoidable. They're all preventable. They're not acts of God, like one I read about divine intervention. That was a funny one. Or any other excuse that people are giving to deny accountability for them having researched their role, researched training methods to provide injury-free approach to training. And if for whatever reason you do have uh, incurred them and, and we all have these learning experiences, there's no shame in that. But don't get fooled again. Don't get fooled the second time round. Take the lesson that the body is, uh, is, is wanting to give you about the need to change your approach to training. So I believe that if we'd done this audio 30 years ago, there wouldn't be too much interest in it, which would have been great. I suggest now that there's a lot more people with torn muscles, including tears from the bone. Therefore, more should be listening to this. But over and above that, the majority of people are lifting weights and involved in running sports or lifting weights and deadlifting, etc. The risk to you all is extreme. It's very high. And you would be well served by paying attention to the information that we've provided you. Now, realistically, most of you won't. Of the few that do take time to be at this part of the audio. The majority of you will disregard what we're talking about. And there'll be a number of you that will say in the years to come in, um, I wish I'd listened. And, you know, there'll be no celebration on our end. We won't say, yeah, I told you so, ha, ha, ha. Um, You know, we understand you're human. We understand um, lessons take different lengths to be learned in different human beings. So there's a door is always open to give you guidance um, even if you need to have a, have a bigger hit on the head, if you need a bigger a bang on the head to give you a wake-up call. We've been teaching this approach to training now for 30-plus years, 
and the philosophy has always been the same and it'll always be the same, looking after the individual, not the politics, looking after the individual, not the commercial interests, looking after the individual, not the ego of the coach. Here to help you exceed your own expectations, not here to impress the colleagues. So we'll have this message in 10, 20, 34 years' time, and, and for some of you that's how long it will take for you to get the message. The door is always open, and there is always opportunity. Irrespective of your age or your physical condition, there is always the opportunity for you to improve your body and to overcome earlier errors in training. Because we're all in the same boat. We've all paid the price in some regard for our training decisions. It's just a matter of when we take the lesson and whether we're willing to, to reverse those errors in decision. So I trust today's call has been of great value to you. I know the medical fraternity would be very happy for you to continue doing what you're doing. I know the contemporary physical preparation fraternity would be very happy for you to not question what they're doing. But at the end of the day, I really don't want to see you living in that um, uh, building that's dedicated in the old people's home to former athletes and former people who lifted weights because there will be one and it won't be much fun. So I trust it's been valuable. We'll talk.